gentlemen this is me Kyle Borgannoni your co-host for the fantasy footballers DFS podcast and I am joined by my bestest buddy Matthew Betts that's me here I am um man what a show I'm excited last week I felt like it was kind of my turn to take the lead on these cash game strategies that's that's what I do the most I'm excited to learn from you this week man you're you're the one that's freaking in the thousands each week playing these GPPs, so you're the you're the GPP bro on the show. Uh, you'll take the lead on this one, I'm sure. I'm the of this bunch, the Greg Jennings, the put the team on my back, and maybe that's what this team needs this week to talk about grand, uh, grand tournaments. We're talking about guaranteed prize pool GPPs, and these are the big ones. These are the ones that people see on TV. Maybe you've lit your money on fire when it comes to tournaments. And what I want to make sure is that there's things we avoid, but then there's a different mindset that we take on. So specifically in this episode, we're going to talk about how do you approach this differently in terms of game theory. And that's what I love. I love thinking about this as I'm in a game and how do I approach this differently than who are just the best plays of the week? And I think often that's where we kind of, that's where the public, at least the the field says who are the best plays and how to think differently. So I'm excited about it. And I know that's like, this is something that I think you're good at. You're just better in the single entries. Oh yeah, that's for, that's for sure. I would definitely agree with that. And we'll talk specifically about that on the show today. So we'll have everything you guys need in terms of strategy to win these like huge, you know, 150 entry type tournaments, as well as those single entry three max type tournaments as well. So we got you guys covered on the show. And we're leading up to leak to week one. This week it's GPP strategy. Next week we're talking about showdown strategy and maybe talk a little bit about that Dallas and Tampa Bay game in week one. Then heading into September, we're gonna be talking about Vegas tips and week one lines, which I think that show is gonna be great to kind of piece what is everybody already saying? What are what are what's the consensus group think heading into week one? And then we will go to two shows a week starting that second week in September. And I'm excited about that. But for our quick question, let's talk about the biggest mistakes. We did an entire episode on our biggest mistakes of just DFS in general. But let's focus in on GPP before we get into the meat of our episode. When you are playing GPPs, what do you see as the biggest mistake that the field makes? I would say the biggest thing that I see is just not using roster percentages enough. You know, everyone knows at this point that it matters to some degree, but I think people will maybe question like, well, how much? Like, is it okay that I'm playing a couple of popular plays? Should I be playing all, you know, 5% rostered players? Like how different do I need to get? And I just think there's a lot of weakness that we see in general in terms of thinking about that, that it really is nuanced. And that's how you win in GPPs is understanding roster percentage and how to get different than the field without being silly in your lineup setting you know you can still play good plays that have upside without having to play the chalky plays and i think people uh, struggle to achieve that balance and hopefully we can bring you guys that this year with the roster percentage report as well as the articles the podcast etc here uh, with the dfs pass that's one etc that uh, we're starting the episode 
off, off with. So we last week discussed that Betts <laughs> has a couple of words he uses, et cetera, as his. Somebody called me out for saying whatnot. Uh, if I do say that and call me out, you get a point. But right now I'm ahead one nothing. I will throw this out there. Contest selection is not so much something, I mean, anybody can learn that, but a lot of lineups are already dead. They're just dead because they're not GPP type lineups. When we think of who's entering these massive fields, it's the tournaments that are really cheap to buy into, but they're like 150 max entries. So this year, the fact that they made the Millie Maker, you can have a $5 buy-in point. That's going to invite a lot of casual people and people that might not know what they're doing as much. They could still win, but the chances are there's a lot of dead lineups. And so I would just say I see that that you look at the entry fee. That's what a lot of people sort by, and I've done that tons of times. I look at that entry fee, and I say, okay, that's a dollar. That's $2 when the field is putting in $150 because they're putting in 150 entries. So that's probably the biggest mistake for noobs, myself included. And it's something that we talked about a little bit more contest selection and how to do that with DraftKings two episodes ago. But any last thoughts on mistakes? Yeah, I just have one more that I'll throw in here. We're going to talk about this in more detail, but it's the idea of correlation. Um, we spent what feels like now at least two shows on stacking. I feel like I've been writing so much content about stacking in the DFS past that I don't remember where we talked about it or wrote about it, but it's in our content somewhere. So go back and check those things out. But, you know, we're trying to maximize correlation and hit the absolute ceiling outcomes in these tournaments, right? In cash games, as we talked about last week, we care a lot more about floor. And in these types of tournaments, there's not enough correlation. Like people sometimes will say like, okay, I stacked my quarterback. Like I'm good. Let's just move on. And especially in these like large field GPPs, like you have to be willing to, I guess, you know, sacrifice a little bit of projection maybe to, you know, kind of go ahead and correlate. Like what happens if this quarterback should have been double stacked and then brought back with two on the other team? Like people don't correlate enough, in my opinion. And I feel like that is one way to get leverage on the field is just if you're correlating enough in a smart way, there aren't enough people doing it. So that's one way to get uh, a leg up on the field. And if you need some visuals about what correlation looks like, I just released a stacking article. Betts has killed a bunch of how to attack certain positions. So he just finished one on wide receivers. He's working on one right now for tight ends. So that's free on the website. We thought about paywalling that, but there's so many people that are getting into DFS that we are going to start paywalling uh, a lot of our stuff that's in the DFS pass in the Ultimate Draft Kit Plus. A lot of great articles, so I would encourage you to check that out if you need some visuals of what we mean by correlation and which positions correlate best. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Kyle underscore Borg, and you can follow Betts at the Fantasy PT. And just so you guys know, Betts is a social media influencer. He just hit 13,000, and he'd, he probably wouldn't want you to know that, but I want you to know that because the man is moving and shaking things in the Twitter sphere. <laughs> I don't know what to say. You're the worst, man. <laughs> That's no. such a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. Hey, hey. Actually, it's not even a big deal at all. It's it's ahead of me. And uh, <laughs> so if, as long as you keep that distance and, I'm, you know, we're not like farming for follows. We're not uh, doing that kind of stuff, but we do enjoy engagement. And I think what you're really good at is you will respond to people. You know, you're not you're not big enough. You're like, oh, I can't talk to anyone. So uh, feel free to message us on Twitter. and. Go on iTunes, subscribe, review, do whatever you need to do to let us know what you're enjoying about the show. And uh, as we get in closer to the season, you can still hop on the Ultimate Draft Kit Plus. 
we think it's a great deal. We have people every single day that are DMing us or, you know, we see it from the baller side, like people are jumping in to DFS and there's going to be some awesome contests that we'll announce on the main show soon about DraftKings. So I think that's going to be pretty great. But let's talk about GPP. You down with GPP? GPP, we're talking about guaranteed prize pools. We're talking about the big daddies. And I want to give a couple overarching thoughts. If you have been listening to us, you understand before we get into our tips, we usually kind of break it down from like a 10,000 foot view of here's what we mean by GPP strategy tournaments. So I just want to talk a bit about game theory and you feel free to hop in here bets uh, because all of us play games. Uh, whether it's, you know, online, we play video games, we play board games, cards, whatever it is. So you understand the fact that a game has rules, it has parameters. And when you're playing a game, usually there's other people involved. And so that's the biggest thing that I want to make sure we understand. We're involving ourselves with so many other people in a tournament. Like there's so many other variables about players, but also how is everyone else going to react? When we talked about cash game strategy last week, we focus more on what are the optimal plays and that's huge. That's really matters. And I think that still matters in regards to how we approach GPPs. We just have to use that information differently. So really quickly, when we mean game theory, we're talking about how do you find the best plays, the most optimal plays. And the way you do that is you weigh out what are the benefits, like the cost benefits, what's my opportunity cost, and also how the other players are playing within the game. So, you know, if you're playing a board game with some family members, I play right now Candyland a little too much with my son. Ooh, that's a great game. Okay, so Candyland, if you haven't played it, you know, recently, it's drawing cards. That's literally it. It's drawing cards. There is no skill involved with this game at all. And yet, I feel like my win percentage is like in the low 30s with my son. Like, it's actually shocking how fortunate he's been with this game of just drawing. But I also understand in this game, there are certain parameters of how, you know, this game, that game is probably not the best example, but how my son will react to the game. If we're playing Battleship, I know how my son is going to play. And so I react that way. So do you think people don't understand that part of tournaments? Like they're not thinking about the field. They're just thinking about their own lineups. Yeah, I think that's one way to put it. And then that's a great way to think about it, right? Like we're not only trying to tell ourselves a story with our lineup in terms of how it can win, but also we need to be kind of asking ourselves the question, how can other people make mistakes that helps us basically? So I think, yes, thinking about who you're playing against mistakes they could potentially make uh, is another way to, to phrase game theory and how you can understand that that's how I, you know, can get a leg up on the competition without having to have the perfect lineup each week. Yeah, it's how you perceive other players. And we spent a whole episode. We're going to have this in the DFS pass. Uh, there's articles about roster percentages. So we're not going to spend as much time talking about the nitty gritty of roster percentages. Go back four or five episodes. But if you don't have that piece of information in your DFS, you are playing blindly. It's like you're playing a board game and you have no idea what anybody else is doing on the board. Like imagine playing Risk and just doing it blindfold and not blindfold and like not knowing where anybody else has their guys set up. It's, it's not going to help you. So sounds uh, risky. It is risky business. Oh, yep. Socks and all <laughs> what um, <a> terrible joke. <laughs> so with GPPs, you are playing to win, you know, 
just have a day. And maybe that's your only day for the entire year where cash, last week we talked about having a long-term mindset, having a long-term approach. Do you feel like this distinction, like, it's just like, you have to have a different mindset. Like you have to have a different set of like, all right, here's my goals. Cause if you don't like, you're going to get discouraged really quickly. You got to be tough to play in GPPs. Like truly mentally, like if you're going to play for 18 weeks and the playoffs this year, you need to be willing to lose because it's going to happen. We're talking about in tournaments. If you take down one per year, you're probably doing really well. If you finish cashing four, five, six times throughout the year, you're probably doing really well. Whereas in cash, if you're only cashing, you know, six times throughout the year, like you're probably not having a good season. But because these structures are so top heavy in their payouts, you can afford to lose two, three, four weeks in a row. Yeah, that's not fun. But you come back in the fifth week, you win a, a huge tournament, and all of a sudden your entire year can be made based off how how much that pays. So, you know, it is one of those things that I think you just embrace that and you know that when you play GPPs more consistently. But because of the top heavy payout structure of these tournaments, it really can make your entire season in just a couple of weeks. And just a little pro tip, I would say that if you miss out, like if you're really close in a GPP, like don't tell yourself a story like, oh, if I just would have done this, 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 like every single person is doing that in GPP. They're one or two plays away from making it happen. So uh, you can get caught in that forever and think that you're, we're, we're, ju- we're perfect every single time. Like every single person is one or two plays away from cashing in a GPP. So uh, just don't rewrite history is my main point. But if this is a game, we have to adjust who is playing with us. And for cash, what do we need to understand about who we're playing with? And then we'll go to GPP. Yeah, and cash, I think you're thinking about the fact that there's some people that are trying to, I guess, like reach the ceiling outcome and and they're going to make mistakes and we're going to let them. And that's going to help us basically, right? The idea is, I think in cash, I don't worry about what other people are doing. I just sit down and focus. Here's my lineup. Here's what I think is the best uh, lineup to win this week and to have a nice median outcome that I think will cash, you know, be better than half the field. That's all that we care about in those formats. So I think in that kind of situation, you're more willing to ignore your competition because you trust your own process. Whereas in GPPs, I think it's a completely different conversation. Yeah, in cash, you're betting on yourself. And I think this is what we talk about a lot with 50-50s and double-ups. You're saying, all right, the field, I feel like I can be better than 50% of them. And I know for you, like this is part of your life, this is part of your job now. But it's like playing poker. And if you've ever played poker with someone who doesn't know what they're doing, it's kind of like scary because you're like, I don't, they don't know what cards they have that are good. Like I played with some friends recently and like they were going all in on like four, seven off suit, but they would like hit a river card. And you're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like that is not the optimal play. And sometimes they do that. But a lot of times you're letting them make mistakes. So when I play poker with people that are, you know, casual players, and I'm not an expert. I let them make the mistakes. Like I let them go in when they shouldn't. And I kind of bide my time until I have, you know, good cards and I play those cards. And that's what you get to do with cash. Uh, You let other people make mistakes. In a GPP, you are basically in a board game of people that are committed. They know what they're doing. And yes, there's going to be casual people that are in that tournament as well, but you're not trying to beat those people who don't know what they're doing. You're trying to beat the people that look at this thing every single week. So, The goal is 
not really about not making mistakes. It's more about embracing risk and embracing volatility, which is scary. It's super scary to say this is the McCall Hardman week when he's only had one week in his career as a top 12 wide receiver. But when he hits, you can have leverage on Tyreek Hill, even though actually those two have actually had pretty positive correlation for the most part. But uh, GPP is inviting more skill, more variables, more players. Why do you think that's enticing? I feel like it's exciting, right? Like you, you have the ability to, I guess, kind of go against more people who are taking it more seriously. And so when you win, not only do you have this idea of like, okay, I really was able to use my game theory hat and be able to leverage the field, but also like it's it's pretty sweet to, to win that amount of money and to have that huge payout in a given week. So there's definitely risk, but there's massive upside with it as well. And don't get me wrong, there's luck. There's so much luck involved in oh, terms of... Oh, for sure, dude. It's it's the, a lot of luck. We're, we're the, lying if it's not, if we don't say that there's a lot of luck involved. Yeah, the pace of the game. I mean, one of my favorite weeks last year, GPP, was that Hail Mary to DeAndre Hopkins. Like that launched me. I think I ended up third in that, uh, in that contest. Like, okay, that's not going to happen most of the time. And I was jumping for joy. It was, it was a great weekend, but you understand we can't be passive in our decision-making when it comes to GPP. We have to be super proactive. So we want to give five proactive decisions to make about GPP. So these are things that you can just say, I'm going to do this as opposed to just passively making lineups and hoping that you hit the nuts. So the first one is this, trust your research, not Twitter. What do I mean by that? I think this goes back to us having a process throughout the week. And I want to point people to the article you wrote about a weekly schedule of a skilled DFS player taking you basically from like Tuesday all the way to lock on Sunday and how to be systematic in that approach versus Logging in on Sunday morning on Twitter from approximately 9 Eastern till 1 o'clock Eastern can be a very, very dangerous thing. This is when people are posting their opinions. They're posting, you know, recent little news blurbs or little clips of a player with a minor little injury running routes to warm up. And like all of a sudden your head starts spinning and you're like, do I just throw everything out the window from the week that I had prepped or do I just follow what this guy is you know, saying on Twitter because he seems pretty smart? He's got some followers like, let's go, let's do this. And I think that can lead you in a lot of uh, bad directions very quickly. So I try to spend most of my time Sunday mornings actually off of Twitter. I have notifications set up for the major beat reporters and, of course, the national reporters as well, like Shefty uh, and Rap Sheet, just to get some news updates that are maybe relevant. But outside of that, I'm just trying to like stick to my process, you know, go through our content, make sure all that is right. Uh, Twitter can be really dangerous sometimes, despite it being a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun and it's a bubble. Like there's a lot of professional DFS players that they're not sitting on Twitter saying who are the popular plays. Like if anything, you can use Twitter as leverage by saying what are a bunch of people talking about and go in the opposite direction if you want. But I think it's just overload. There's a certain point of the week where you just get too much overload. Their opinions matter, but maybe they matter more in terms of fading. And so imagine... You're going through your week, you're creating your lineups, you're getting some awesome insights from DFS Pass. You listen to Borg and Betts. You know, that Friday episode's a banger. You're just mowing the lawn. You are feeling great going into Saturday. And then you go on Twitter Saturday night or Sunday morning and you see somebody, let's just call him Hot Take McGee, our buddy. And he says something like, 
Imagine fading Devontae Adams this week. Or he says, Marvin Jones in a GPP, send tweet is what it says. And I chose that last one because I've actually <laughs> sent that before. <laughs> I've sent a lot of Marvin Jones tweets, let's be honest. Uh, That's true. That's it, like 90% of your timeline. <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, why Why is that so influential just from like a psychological perspective? I think you see it. And a lot of times you'll see that when you're building your lineups. So you're like, okay, I guess I have to do this. Like this seems like the right play. And because they're so the statements usually are like very dogmatic of like, this is correct. Do this. Right. You tell yourself a story where you're like, okay, I, I got to do it. Um, I actually can think to a, a specific example myself, like an idiot last year, I was posting something about an hour before lock uh, saying like, this is the Julio week. Everyone's in on Ridley, like Julio's back. And Julio had like three for 40, like did not help anyone. So I've made the mistake. I'm not going to do that to you guys this year. Um, our process, I think is sound and I'm going to avoid those little Sunday morning hot takes. It's a struggle for me personally because I want to give people good advice, but in GPPs, there's so much volatility. I want people to learn the game. Like the best part of winning is that you figured it out. It wasn't just like copy and paste somebody else's picks. Uh, they, there's a game part of this. I like playing the game. Imagine playing a board game with your family members, doing nothing and winning. Like there's not really any glory in not playing the game. So you want to do that. Stone cold locks that a lot of people say are stone cold. They don't always help us in GPPs. They might help you in cash. If this is the cheap running backs, we want variants. So let's travel back to week one last year. I'm going to read off some tweets. And these are all tweets about Boston Scott. What do you remember about our discussions of Boston Scott week one last year? Yeah, we talked about uh, him last week, actually about how there was the Miles Sanders hamstring injury that lingered throughout camp and then he missed week one. And so it was the automatic, you know, cheap running back on DraftKings. They already had the salaries released. So you just take the cheap running back volume and you play them in your GPPs. That's what everyone was saying to do. And we're not saying that cheap running backs are bad or that the process was so bad. It was more of the lock part. There's there's always room for any player to underperform at any salary. It's just totally possible. So I'm going to read you some tweets and I'm not going to list the names, but these are actually from people that have like 200,000 follows, like really big accounts. Okay. That carry some weight. This was Andy Holloway last year, wasn't it? No, no, this wasn't any of us. <laughs> oh man. What if I was like, his name was Matthew Betts. He was telling all these people he's such a Homer on the Eagles. Jeez. All right, team so in the league, man. First tweet, I currently have Boston Scott ranked as RB16 for the week. Yes, I'm bullish, and you should be too. Okay? Very dogmatic, and I get it. It's just not very helpful in a GPP. It feels like, I should do this. This person has 300,000 follows. The next one is from Pro Football Focus. You may have heard of them, which we use a lot of their stuff. Respect them. Uh, they showed their projections for the week and Boston Scott was their RB12. So that's not even talking about DFS. That's just talking in general. RB12 and his price point was what? Like 4K? Super stupid yeah, cheap? something like that. Uh, next one. Boston Scott should be the highest owned player in week one D DFS. I can't pass on that value. Okay. And last one. We had Boston Scott in our week one DFS GPP lineup before it was cool. And now we'll still stick with him. So. This isn't to like give a bunch of cold takes, but it's just to show you like those are influential. Those are very dogmatic. This is what this is when there's a range of outcomes 
for each player. So don't let Twitter influence you. Do your own research and come up with a process and uh, you won't go uh, too crazy. You want to hit the next one? one? I was going to say, before we move on, one last thing real quick. In the DFS pass, we have the buzz report, which part of that takes into account like social media. Like, who are these people talking about? And sometimes it's the right play. Sometimes it's not. And I think we have to ask ourselves the question, is this right or not? When you think, look at like who is in the buzz report, who are people talking about the most this week? And this is a great example. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, So we're not here to like say we knew. I played Boston Scott last year, um, but it is a good way, like you said, to use it as leverage. So I'm, I'm with you on that for sure. The next point here are, are proactive decisions to make. Top projected players are not always the best plays. Because if they were, you would literally just log in, look at a set of projections, find the optimal lineup, play that lineup in every tournament, and you would just be printing money. Clearly, that is not how it works. And I think we just need to be willing to accept that there is so much projection error in football. It's such a high variance sport that you know sometimes we're going to want to use projections as a way to base our, our decision lineups, especially in cash games. Like I use that a lot. But when you look at a a GPP, I think we need to be willing to ask ourselves a lot. Is there projection error here? And where can this go south? Like, how can this go wrong? And that can be a really good way, again, to use that as leverage in a tournament. Medium projections. So, you know, we we think of players that have pretty safe floors, Stephon Diggs, like DeAndre Hopkins. All right. I feel like you're going to get 15 points in a redraft league. And I can feel pretty confident in that about Hopkins. That's really good content to tell somebody, especially like in redraft, you're adding up your players. You can see your projections ahead of time. The reality is it's not good for GPP. It's good content, but it's not good content for GPP. You think of the players that have the highest probability. Let's go with Diggs or or Hopkins for this example. If you go down to like the fifth or sixth most, you know, highest probability, the difference isn't that much. Like what is the difference between Diggs and, and Keenan Allen in terms of like a median outcome in a PPR format? It's like not that much. Like maybe Diggs feels like even a little safer and, and, and you like the offense, you like Josh Allen, but reality is it's not that big of a difference. So the lock of the week that everyone says, this is the lock and the guy that's seven, 8% rostered, maybe even less than that. It's actually not that different in terms of what we want to look at. So the general public, we love locks because there's surety there. There's there's a certainty that I can say, this person's a lock. I can set it and forget it. Now, let me think of my other parts of my lineup. We're like moths to a flame. We are just sheep, aren't we? <laughs> well said. Um, I've said this on the podcast before. I think I said this a lot last year. Like, If you're playing a GPPs and you're not second guessing yourself or like thinking about like, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable about this lineup. You're probably doing it wrong. Like if you're going into the, your GPP lineups thinking that you know exactly that you are correct, again, that like kind of personal bias or not understanding that there's so much projection error, I think can really come back to bite you in the butt in GPPs. We're looking for somebody who has a high enough probability at their price point. So do they have a ceiling at their price point? So Boston Scott did have a ceiling at his price point at 4K. Like that week, it's like, okay, well, he can get 20 points. Like he's the only guy. It's totally possible. But we also get to factor in his roster percentage and everyone else and, and see what's see what's there. So think of really popular players like Dalvin Cook, who's probably, I feel like the guy we talk about the most on this podcast. 
Like Dalvin Cook ends up because he's just so guaranteed volume. In cash, he's like a wrecking ball. We're going to be talking about him every single week. But in GPP, he's like a double-edged sword. Like, okay, you could do a ton of damage, but you could also completely destroy your lineup because Dalvin Cook is $9,000 on DraftKings and you are severely hurting your lineup if a Dalvin Cook is 30% rostered. So the key is just how to create leverage and using those projections against everyone else and saying, okay, well, you know, the 15th highest projected wide receiver is like not that far off from Diggs. Uh, we could totally do that. So how do we create leverage? We've talked about this before, but leverage is so key in GPP. Yeah, the way you create leverage is you look at uh, players who have a similar, I guess, outcome, like you said, possible outcome. We don't know what it is. We're just trying to say, like, what is the most likely scenario here? And then look at players that are similar. Like you said, I think a great example is the Keenan Allen, Stefan Diggs types. Um, last year, I remember there was like a huge week of like it was Derrick Henry week. And this is the week that I was in on Dalvin Cook because I said they seem to have a pretty similar ceiling. Yet the roster percentage projected was like 25% for Henry and like 12 for Dalvin Cook. And I said, OK, like I'll just play Dalvin Cook and hope that he's right and the other people are wrong. And yet it worked out and you're going to miss some times. But finding players that have a similar ceiling at far reduced ownership or roster percentage is really how you get different in these GPPs without sacrificing um, good plays. And when the running backs, you can easily go to the other side of the field because, you know, the narrative is Dalvin Cook, you know, the Vikings are going to get ahead and Dalvin Cook's just going to wrap, rack up a ton of points. Well, hey, what if you're like, you know what? It's actually going to be Jamal Williams of the Lions, which alliance let's laugh about that for a little bit but (laughs) good one kyle (laughs) but you understand the process like you're going the running back on the other side you're picking a different game script a different narrative or you're going in the passing game you know instead of alexander madison week it was justin jefferson week or you're finding a running back at a similar price point that isn't as popular like bets talked about so think about that creating leverage and you're using that dalvin cook like awesomeness he's so good against him he will not be the best play every single week despite he will probably be up there as a top three or four projected running back every single week um but for gpps like i don't know three or four weeks that you need dalvin cook that's probably about it so all right on to point number three we're going to be talking about fading the matchup noise and i'll let you take this one Yeah, I broke this down in the section on the doc by position. So quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends. And, you know, really what we're going to look at here is, as we talked about this quite a bit, that matchups don't matter as much, I think, as the general public thinks they do. And we've talked about this kind of psychological factor of, okay, I log into DraftKings or log into FanDuel and I see this like green number next to Dalvin Cook. You know, he's playing one of the worst rushing defenses. He's playing the Texans this week. You see like 32 or 31. And psychologically, that just feels right to play that player. But we found through some research from Matt DeSorbo, who's really sharp, one of our writers, he's awesome, uh, as well as other research we've done that, you know, matchups, they're kind of overvalued. Like the top performing offenses, are they're going to roll no matter who they're playing. We've seen that for the running back position. We've seen that for wide receivers. We've seen that for quarterbacks. um, And it just helps us be able to, I think, again, have a leg up on the competition that sees this as a way of saying 
They're playing this team. They suck. So we have to play their quarterback, running back, wide receiver. And it just doesn't work out that way, uh, unfortunately. And you can find players at different price points that we know with quarterbacks, anybody can put up a 30 point week uh, when you get the bonuses and everything else, especially if there's rushing involved. So for quarterback, it's like, okay, matchups, they matter. Like it really matters if you're playing Pittsburgh. We're not saying fade that, but in tournaments, they don't matter as much in terms of like jumping all in and saying, I can't play this quarterback at all because we know anybody can, can truly go off running backs. On the other hand are just, it doesn't really matter that much. Like if you are a legit top five running back, I don't care who you are. If they're being faded in a GPP, if Derrick Henry is being completely faded because of the narrative of Tennessee is going to be behind, just jump on Derrick Henry's back that week. And if it's snowing in Vermont, as as our snow model says, then uh, we you hit the lock to, button. You definitely jump on the Yeti's back. <laughs> so running backs, they're pretty resilient to defensive matches, but wide receiver is the one that I think I've learned the most on this offseason. Yeah, I would agree. And we have the article that you write in the DFS pass, right? The wide receiver cornerback matchups. People love that in DFS. They love to look at, okay, who's lining up against Jalen Ramsey this week? We have to to fade that player. Or, you know, this guy is taking on a rookie corner. Like, we have to play that wide receiver. And don't get me wrong. In a vacuum, I want to be taking on the undrafted free agent rookie corner. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you look at these elite wide receivers, especially the elite wide receivers, like Devontae Adams, he's moving all over the field. Allen Robinson, he's in and out of the slot. Like th- these, these wide receivers, they're meant to be able to be so versatile and such an elite part of the offense that coaching staffs are putting them in position to succeed. So even though Devontae Adams may play 20 snaps lined up against Jalen Ramsey, we can still feel confident that, hey, they're going to use him around the goal line. They're going to move him into the slot. You know, they're going to try to create ways to get his, him the ball in his hands. And that's just one example. But I think that we've seen not only does the data show that, but the way NFL offenses are evolving, I think should help us at least question how much this cornerback matchup really matter this week. And I'm going to be finding myself, I think, a lot in GPPs, mostly fading the idea that we need to take a, a wide receiver out of our player pool because he's playing this corner this week. I just want to give a shout out for my boy Julio Jones, because as a Falcons fan for years, it just didn't matter. It didn't matter who the cornerback was. There was talk, you know, of Marshawn Lattimore, whoever it is. But like you go back, this dude's averaging more yards per game than any other wide receiver in the history of the league. And when he got moved in the slot, like I, I love that part of the game because they didn't do it enough. But when they did, it was just like automatic. Like Julio was going to do damage. So yes, wide receivers move all over the place. And that's what I'm going to probably do the most this year is just fade the matchup and lean further into it, but take advantage of those really weak matchups like you mentioned. And then uh, let's finish it off with tight end. Yeah, tight end is one of those positions that it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know that matchups matter really at all. And, And the reason I say that is because when you think about it, like who's like a middling tight end this year in redraft leagues or like back end, like late round quote unquote sleeper, like Anthony Ferkser. Or whoa, whoa! Ev- don't talk. Uh, the don't talk about the- <laughs> Come on. <laughs> or Evan Ingram. Okay. Or Irv Smith. Like people are very excited about trying to find the late round tight end. But you could give me Irv Smith against the Texans sixteen weeks, seventeen weeks, and I'll still take Travis Kelsey every single time playing the Rams or whoever the best defense is in the NFL. Like the elite tight ends just separate so much from these guys catching three for thirty yards that. It doesn't matter that 
Evan Ingram has a good matchup this week. And I want to point people again to the article that's coming out about how to attack the tight end position. And, and I'm talking a lot about that in the article that we're seeing these, you know, mid-range tight ends. They don't, even in a good matchup, they don't perform. So we should really be willing to, especially in those situations, I think use roster percentage more than anything to dictate our process when trying to find a tight end not named Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller, Kittle, etc. There you go, number two. I'm going to take off my spreadsheet bro uh, hat for a second and just talk football guys. But there are teams that do have like a funnel system that they don't want to give up the deep ball. So the Colts are like famously doing this last couple of years. Like they just said, hey, you got to beat us short. Um, that's what you got to do. So there are certain defenses, but for the most part, tight end matchups are noise. There are teams that are historically just ungodly bad. The Cardinals were so bad a couple of years ago. That was just... Yes, you're going to play them. Um, but in GPPs, it's one of those things where just mostly ignore it. And we will preview the week one slate in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk about those matchups, talk about matchup noise. So that'll be fun to kind of go through and say, hey, here's what the public is already saying about this matchup between these two players when it's like, hey, this this dude's going to be in the slot half the time. It doesn't really matter. Um, he's not going to shadow him. But all right, let's talk about single entry strategy, and then I will go into large field strategy and we'll do some mailbag. So this is more your area of expertise. You're saying you're going to go in a tournament that only has one entry, but it's a it's a big, big group or at least, you know, semi big. So how do we approach single entry different than those ones that we can enter three to uh, even 150 lineups? Yeah, I'm going to talk about this from the lens mostly of like smaller field single entry tournaments and what i mean by that is you'll find any from like 50 to 100 to 250 up to like 500 like that type of field we're not talking about the ones that there's like you know 10,000 entrants or more for this type of strategy so i think in those kind of formats and single entry you have a much better possibility to i think fade like chalky plays if you have a strong stance that week because when you fade those type of players in a huge field tournament you're probably not going to be the only one doing it. In these smaller fields, you will see a lot of people condensing to the most popular plays that week because they say to themselves, okay, this is a smaller field. I can just avoid to eat some chalk and then just get different elsewhere in my lineup. And I found myself actually taking a, a much different approach in these that I'm doing the opposite. I'm trying to get a little bit more different in this type of format to be able to quickly go from last place up to caching. Like if something goes wrong with the chalk in these types of formats, you are going to skyrocket up the board if you don't play those chalky plays that fail. And I'm not saying that you can't play one or two popular guys that week. Don't get me wrong. But I think that this is a type of, of situation where you can be willing to um, really, if you have a strong take against a player or against the game stack or something like that, really help you elevate against the other players in this tournament. So you want to get weird is what you're saying. You want to get weird, but not and too weird. I just, I like single entries because you have the same shot as everyone else. It's not as intimidating and it does invite a lot of casual people to say, I can compete and I will go a single entry. That's a $5 single entry. So you are seeing a lot of people that do take, I don't know, they look more like cash lineups if we're honest in those. So I would say jump in those with us. It's fun to be able to be in the same tournament as other people. So a lot of time bets and I will both get into a single entry and just see how we did. It's like another way of us competing. We didn't do as many head to heads last year. Uh, maybe that's- We did one. <laughs> <laughs> Remember you challenged me that week. 
was like, who does this guy think he is? All right, let's do this. I don't remember. I'm not gonna happened. lie. I mean, it was a five dollar and I won, so I'm just saying. You so so I you're gonna take me out for a five dollar beer is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Nice. All right. Last part of this, I'll talk about large field strategy, which is probably what most of you guys think about when it comes to GPPs. Um, there are a lot of deadline ups, and the key thing for me, stay with me, is you are thinking what you think about what other people are thinking, right? You with me? Kinda, yeah. So I'm thinking about, hey, what is everyone else thinking here? Like I, that's, that's where I'm spending time in a large field. What are other people thinking about doing? And luckily we have the roster percentage report, the buzz report, and our good friend Twitter to kind of tell us what people are doing in tournaments. And if you're not max entering, you do need to understand that you're gonna be behind the eight ball from, for a lot of people, they just get more shots at it. Uh, I even feel that way in best ball. I haven't max entered any of these tournaments. I don't really have the bankroll, you know, to put down five or $6,000. So I do feel behind in some of these massive tournaments, but I am going to give myself enough shots where I can get to at least, you know, 20, 30, 40 entries. And I think the best thing to do is to do a three max to start off with, or to do ones where you can, you know, comfortably put in 15 lineups, 20 lineups, and just get shots at this. The thing that I want to encourage is find value stacks in games that aren't as popular. We brought up the statistic earlier, but the same amount of games last year that went that had a total over 50, there was also the same amount, 66 of them, that were between 47 and 49 and a half points. So right under that 50 point mark. And that group that was right under 50, it went over so much, like almost 60% of the time. And the, the 50 overs went under a ton. So what's that telling me is I just want to be able to jump in on a game that's a little bit less popular and find a value stack and just roll with it. Do the same thing that we've talked about. Find the right correlation, double stack, and double stack as much as you can. Last year, in the top 10 Millimaker lineups, and well, over the last two years, they used a quarterback and their two teammates 41% of the time, but the field did it less than 29%. So the field's not double stacking. They're not saying quarterback, wide receiver, wide receiver, or quarterback, wide receiver, wide receiver, and bringing it back. They're just not doing it enough. So I'm going to make sure I do that. And I get at least four guys from the same game. And that already gets me different. So if I pick a game that's different than everyone else, that has a different total. And if I am double stacking, then I've already set myself up and then you just figure out, okay, what is one, maybe one chalky play that I'll use? Maybe it's it's Dalvin this week or another running back, or where can I get different elsewhere uh, with my stack? So that's how I mostly approach large fields. Anything you want to add? Y'all just say that by doing that, you're minimizing the things that you need to get right. Like we should be viewing tournaments almost like if you're into doing any sports gambling, like a parlay, like you're trying to get four or five things right for a huge payout. The chances of that happening are very, very, very slim. So by saying to yourself, okay, here is where the roster percentage is really condensing around this game, I could see a path where this fails. And if it does, and I go to a different game like Kyle's saying, and the game goes off, we know that if the quarterback has a good game, every player in that game is going to be elevated to some degree. Now, it may not be that every player hits their ceiling, but you're more likely to find the player that does if you're double stacking and bringing it back with someone on the other side. That is a significant point from today's show, I think, for large field GPPs. You just want to minimize what you have to get right. And for a tournament, let's say I'm putting in 20 lineups. 
the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to pick those less popular games. I'm just going to do it already because I know that I have a little bit of leverage on the field there. And I'm just going to say, this is, this is what I'm going to do. These are my lineups. I'm going to build around, I don't know, let's just say it's, it's the Colts. Cause last year, nobody wanted to play Philip Rivers. He was like median outcome only, but like Philip Rivers, T Y Hilton, Jonathan Taylor, and then run it back with some, on the other side. It's like, okay, I'm going to build like five or six lineups just around that construction. And then I'm going to pick the quarterback on the other side of that game and do the same thing. And then I will pick another game that's in that kind of lower range. And, and all I'm doing there is giving my shot to say, I'm going to build around this game and see what happens. And I'm probably going to lose a lot of the time, but when it hits, you're going to be really thankful that you got weird and got different. Um, and it's really good. So Let's go through a couple of mailbag questions. Mailbag. You know, there's a little bit of sadness when you hear that live mailbag drop because we were going to go to Phoenix a week from today. A week from today, we were going to be there. Uh, and we had to cancel the live show. And maybe you guys heard that and completely fine. It's actually a really good call. I would say I really appreciate the guys for making it, but we've never met in person. We were only met through the, through the screen. So a little sadness, a lot of sadness, but there's always next year. Yeah. We'll, we'll get a live drop that we get to be a part of it in the future. So a couple of mailbag questions, actually we got four or five here. And I think GPPs invite a lot of conversation of like, okay, what do you do different? What's the secret? Uh, ask the Millie maker. They're going to say the same thing. I got lucky and I had a little bit of a process and I'm going to keep staying with it. So let's start off with this one from Joe Varkas at Mexitron 22 on Twitter. He said, what does the process look like when picking out dart throws for GPP? So dart throws. I'll give my take and then I want to kick it back to you, Kyle, because you read up the, you know, a little section in the DFS pass about dart throws of the week. And last year, you hit on a couple of massive ones, most notably the Chase Claypool explosion week against the Eagles, which was very sad, but good for people playing Chase Claypool that week. Um, for me, the process looks like identifying wide receivers on the same team as another chalky wide receiver. Like the correlation between the quarterback one and the wide receiver one is the strongest, but it's not as strong as people think it is, right? Like it could easily be DJ Chark that week, or it could be LaVisca Chanel or Marvin Jones. And if, you know, Marvin Jones is going to be 5%, LaVisca is going to be 7 and then all of a sudden DJ Chark, for example, is 15 Like, I'm not playing DJ Chark that week. They all have a very similar outcome. The correlation score, according to Fantasy Labs from uh, the data going back to 2014, for the wide receiver 2 is 0.53. For the wide receiver one, it's 0.55. It's it's basically the same. So when I pick a dart throw, I'm looking at that kind of uh, situation. Yeah, you, there's no such thing as a wide receiver one dart throw. Uh, even if they're not as popular, it's just like that's the most likely outcome. So yes, you're looking at someone, for me in our roster percentage report, they're, they have to be under 5% and most likely they're going to be under 2%. Because so anybody under 2% is just wild. And, and Claypool was like, you know, 1%, he's less than 1%. He hadn't really done that much. And for me, it was just looking at how bad the Eagles were. Man, I love dunking on the Eagles on this podcast. I don't know why. They were so bad last year. So bad. And just seeing what were the other plays. So yeah, under 2% is where we start off. And then in matchups that could go over that I think a lot of people aren't talking about, that's when they get a little bit more of a bump. 
that that's really fun. You're like, this is a game that has like a 46 total. No one's really excited about it. Let me find the wide receiver two uh, or find a running back two that can just pop. So one week it was Rex Burkhead and that was another fortunate week. And quarterbacks, they have to be really far down there because quarterbacks kind of a flat roster percentage across the board. So dart throws are fun when you hit them, but a lot of times, majority of the year, they won't hit. Uh, next one from Ryan Gibbs. And he has a Canadian flag in his... Uh, in his uh, Twitter handle. So. Is that is this a, a bonjour moment here? It is. It is. It is definitely a bonjour moment. As someone who took French in high school and college, it is a bonjour to Ryan Gibbs. He says, I sometimes see people in multi-entry tournaments submitting identical lineups, essentially upping their buy-in, increasing their payoff if it hits. Any thoughts on the strategy versus slight variations like a lineup optimizer? So, Someone that just says, I'm putting in 10 of the same lineup in this tournament. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's all about risk, right? Like if you feel really confident about a lineup that week and you do that, it could work out really well or you could end up with zeros across the board. And I think if it's a large field tournament, I'm more willing to spread out exposure and lineups to different people because... I don't need all 10 of these lineups to cash. I need one to cash in a big way for it to matter for all 10 lineups, if that makes sense. So I've seen it too. I personally don't do this. Um, I've seen it work for people. I've seen it work against them. So I think it just depends on your risk tolerance for this kind of situation. Yeah, it's mostly from optimizers when people, you know, they run it and we have an optimizer on our site and they say, I want 150 lineups and maybe like the optimizer gives like 10 of them that are the same. I don't recommend doing that because you do want to cover your bases if you're going to do that. It's great if it hits. It's probably just doesn't hit that much. But it would be cool if you ran 10 of the same lineup and you got first through 10th. That would uh, just be like, everyone else, back out. I'm taking all the money. That, w- that would be such a baller move. But uh, That really would be. Don't do it, I, though. I don't think that's going to work. So, yeah, don't recommend that. Uh, Connor Sheldon, he asks, are there any indicators you look for in terms of stacking a quarterback and a running back together? Because I think we mostly think of those as negative correlation. Uh, and is there a way to get different with a quarterback running back stack? Yes, this is a great question because I think that people assume that they know the roles of the running backs in an offense, you know, and don't get me wrong, they're absolutely are running backs that are quote-unquote pass catchers. J.D. McKissick last year, all he did was catch checkdown passes. But people think that they're, I I think, too confident in their ability to identify you should stack this quarterback with the pass-catching running back or bring it back with the pass-catching running back on the opposite side because they're going to be trailing. But in reality, we actually see the correlation scores are worse for the, the opposing RB2 and the RB2 on the same team. So... I am more willing to say if people think that that's what's going to happen to play the starting running back, the guy that's going to get the goal line touches, the guy that's that's the quote unquote workhorse, as opposed to the change of pace back uh, more often than not, I think that that is going to work out best in a tournament. It does get you different. So we've mentioned this. The Titans are an example of, okay, are they going to win with Derrick Henry or are they going to win with Ryan Tannehill? And if if it's Tannehill, then like, okay, Henry's not going to do as well. Uh, in losses last year, he averaged 89 rushing yards, which is still still freaking high. Uh, but it was like, you know, 11, 12 points a game fantasy wise, as opposed to like 24 points. So 
you can tell yourself a story with the game script. Reality is they both could just roll and you are different in a GPP than everyone else who stacked Tannehill with AJ Brown. You said, you know what? I'm going to go with Tannehill who could maybe spread it around. Maybe AJ Brown gets one touchdown and Ferkser gets four, you know? That's, is that not? If that happens, I will be floored. <laughs> We're supposed to get a Ferkser jersey if he wins this tournament, remember? Oh, yeah. But I, what ball. you're saying, though, makes a lot of sense in terms of when you have the running back one and the quarterback, You every time that offense scores a touchdown, most likely. Now, of course, it could be the backup running back, but every time that offense scores a touchdown, it's either Tannehill throwing it in or running it in or Derrick Henry running it in or, again, catching a pass. So you're getting access to all the team's touchdowns, basically, in some fashion. So it sounds counterintuitive, but actually there is decent correlation between the RB1 and the quarterback one because of the fact that if the offense, like you said, rolls, everyone rolls. You're also setting yourself apart. Like, who's stacking Tannehill and Henry? You know, who's who's doing that? Because last year, you might have said, okay, I'm going to get Tannehill, Janu, and A.J. Brown. That's who I'm stacking with, with Tannehill. Like those are the three guys. But then if you have a, a lineup, you get to like bypass all of the Janu and AJ Brown lineups that like, let's say they got 10 points, 15 points. It's like, that's not helping you. So uh, that's where you need to get a little different. All right. Two more questions. This one's from JTH727. If you don't have the bankroll to play 20 slots in a tournament, should I really play single entry tournaments only to have a chance? I do 20 plus entries on the quarter quote punt tourneys and i love this he said but your boy can't multi-entry 20 buck games or my lady will murder me (laughs) oh i think we can all relate to that in some way for sure uh hey hun you don't mind if i just throw in a few hundred here do you okay great um no this is a great question because i think people are asking too you know if everyone else is able to enter 20 and it's the same tournament i can only enter one should I even enter that tournament? And I would say no. That's my take on the situation. I think maybe, Kyle, you have a little bit more perspective on it. I don't play a lot of these types of tournaments personally, but I just think if you are playing in them and you're playing against people who have the capability to max enter, presumably they're either more experienced, uh, they kind of know more about what they're doing, or they just have access to more outcomes, right? Like you want to hit the ceiling. They have 20 chances, you have one. It could work out, but most of the time I'm not. And so for that answer, yes, I am playing more single entry in that type of situation. Yeah, don't feel bad doing the quarter entry. Like the payout's not going to be as good, but you get to try this out. I always tell people, FanDuel has a tournament where you can do 150 lineups for a nickel. So, you know, for $7.50, you get to max enter and you feel like, all right, I'm really going at this. And you might not win as much, uh, but it is cool to see if you've never done it before, if you're like, who are all these people with screenshots and they have like hundreds of lineups, this is how you get to do it. So that is a low level that you can start off with. Definitely be playing single entry every single week, no matter what single entry is what we would recommend. Um, but yeah, start off and use our optimizer. And that's really fun to be able to get 150 lineups and, uh, and let that happen. All right. Last one, longtime listener, Matthew Menninger. Great question here. He says, do you ever look at the options and pricing one week and just not get excited? Definitely a few weeks in the last two years. I just didn't like the pricing on players. And so I did minimal lineups that week. Does that ever happen to you? This is a great question. And one that I think is very nuanced. If you know how to identify those kind of slates, 
Um, they're going to be slates that shape up as awesome action. Like, get in on these slates. Like, there's a lot of silly roster percentage condensing around these players. We might think we have more of a le- an edge here, a leverage. And there's going to be weeks where, you know, like Matthew's saying, like, I don't feel excited about this. Like the salaries don't make sense or I don't really have much of an edge and it's okay to back off that week and not play as much as you normally would. That is something that I think a lot of high level skilled DFS players do, but being able to identify those weeks and be honest with yourself, I think is really important because we all get this like FOMO idea of like, you know, you Saturday night, Sunday morning, people are sending lineups and there's posting all this content about it. And you feel like you have to play. Like you feel like if you don't play that slate, you're wrong. But if you don't see an edge, it's totally fine to back off and really pick your spots uh, as far as being able to identify leverage and, and you know where you feel confident in your abilities. I do this a lot with, I don't play a ton of showdown slates. I think I haven't had as much success as Betts has. And so, yeah, there'll be times where it's like, I don't just don't love the price. Uh, I haven't done as much the afternoon slates. Some people say that that's a good way to be able to simplify it if you're looking at the entire main slate and you're like, I don't love it. Maybe just play the afternoon slate where you're looking at three or four games and that simplifies it uh, a little bit. Uh, so yeah, there's no pressure to ever play. I think everyone feels like every week I got to load up. Like I feel it. I'm going to have a week in October where I go on vacation and I am going to probably have a cash lineup and probably not play many GPPs that week. Cause it's just not worth it for me. So, uh, yeah, don't feel bad at all. And, uh, and I think you'll be totally fine if you play the right plays. Don't light your money on fire. All right. So that's going to end our GPP strategy episode. Once again, next week, we're going to be talking about showdown strategy and talking about how to look at one game at a time, which I think is going to help in general for so many different types of process. So I think it's going to be quite, quite fun. But any last words you want to give to the lovely listener folk? Dude, I'm fired up after this episode. I'm excited about playing some GPPs this year. Hopefully you guys are too. We'll be back next week to talk showdown. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fantasy Footballers DFS Podcast. Don't forget to visit us on the web at www.thefantasyfootballers.com.